The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the Gospel of the Lord. My father-in-law, Duane, died on Monday of this past week at the glorious age of 90. I first met Duane and his wife, Dorothy, in 2001 when I moved to the tiny town of Calamus in eastern Iowa, population 350. Their house sits kitty-corner from the parsonage where we lived. As I washed dishes in my kitchen sink, I could easily peer into their living room and see if their light was still on. Every once in a while, if it was on particularly late, I would call them and give them a bad time for being awake so late. The conversation always started the same way every single time. Me. What are you two doing up so late? Dwayne. Well, me and Mom are just sitting here staring at each other. <clears throat> the parsonage where we lived was surrounded by people who would eventually become my in-laws, which is easy to do when a family makes up one-third of the population of the entire town. Doug's aunt and uncle lived across the street from us. Aunt Sis routinely lured the boys across the street, breaking a cardinal rule in order for them to gain access to her coveted candy drawer. Her husband, Uncle Ed, who was a World War II vet, would chuckle at the boys as they raced each other across the linoleum floor on the kitchen chairs, which were on wheels. Doug's other uncle, Danny, lived two doors down from us. and He was a crusty old fellow. You could always find him sitting on his front steps. Danny's ability to simultaneously swear and smoke was impressive. He smoked in front of the boys, all the while warning them of the dangers of smoking. 
He told them of his time as a long-distance truck driver, his time in the service, and ordered them to always be respectful to the ladies. They hung on his every word. When the boys were really little, if Danny saw me pull into my driveway with groceries, he would yell for me to bring them over so that I could unload the car in peace. To keep the boys from crawling or running away, he would plop them into the giant planters that stood on either side of his front steps, which had sat empty ever since his wife Cindy died. He would bribe the boys with store-bought cookies and cans of Country Time lemonade. In time, I buried Uncle Danny, Uncle Ed, and Aunt Sis. One of Doug's sisters and her whole family were members of my congregation, as were Aunt Sis and Uncle Ed. Many of Doug's extended family came to the baby showers that the church threw for me. When I was pregnant with Christian and was showered with homemade blankets, I commented, wow, I wish I had skills like this. And Dorothy immediately corrected me and said, you have skills of your own, Pastor Sarah. The rest of the extended family I knew from various community events and just by living in a town of 350 people. Anyway, all this to say that by the time I met Doug, I was well acquainted with his family. Doug's parents have always been well respected in their community as people who were kind to everyone. Around 400 people came to Duane's visitation on Thursday. And as I observed the ones who came, I was again reminded of the particular gift that Duane and Dorothy offered their community. They loved everybody. Of the people that streamed into the church to pay tribute to Duane, there were the staunchest conservatives and the most progressive liberals. Calamus has a few of those, like two. Well, one, now that I've left. <laughs> Duane and Dorothy were like Switzerland. People often compare them to Switzerland. Deeply passionate about their community, but unwilling to publicly take sides if it meant alienating others. They listened to all sides of any debate or issue and remained respectfully neutral. For example, when I decided to officiate at the wedding of our organist, Jason, and his partner, Chad, Doug, who was not living in town at the time, went over to his parents' house and said, things are going to be difficult for Sarah. I need you to check on her every day. And Duane said, well, you know, we don't exactly want to get into the middle of this issue. And Doug said, this is the woman I'm going to marry. And Duane and Dorothy checked on me every single day, either by calling or stopping by on their walks around the block. When Doug and I got engaged, the boys were devastated that they would be moving away from their childhood home. Duane and Dorothy came over, and they said, you three are our grandsons now. It doesn't matter if we share blood, you are our grandsons. To prove this point, Duane named them to be pallbearers at his funeral, right along with the other male grandsons, an honor that the boys took very seriously. It was the only time I really cried at the funeral, watching the boys so big and strong, carrying Duane's casket. Duane never met a human being he could not befriend. He easily made friends on elevators, often making it difficult to exit. 
Having grown up poor, he never met a food he would not eat and always needed more ice cream. Once, Doug took him to a fancy restaurant in Napa Valley and Duane ordered a large glass of milk to be served with his meal. He lost his own mother at the age of 10 and regretted the fact that she never saw him grow up to sire such a huge and wonderful family, a family of almost 100 people. Duane was a man who knew exactly who he was. He often said, we aren't fancy people, me and mom, but I'd like to think we're good people. And they were. As people filled the church on Friday, I heard people recall his genuine kindness, his ability to talk to anyone about anything, his laugh, his love for his family and community, his willingness to help out and pitch in. He was a good man. And I am honored to have known him for 23 years and to have called him father-in-law for almost 10. Dwayne knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. This is the very question that John the Baptist is confronted with today in our Gospel reading. The Pharisees send some priests to John and ask him, Who are you? And John answers, I'm not the Messiah. Well, who are you then? They persistently ask, Are you Elijah? No, John answers. Then are you the prophet? They ask. No. He again answers, then tell us who you are so that we have something to tell the Pharisees. John's answer is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I am not the Messiah, but I am the voice that tells you to get ready for him. John knows who he is, and he knows who he is not. He is John. He is not Jesus. What a strange moment of temptation, perhaps, for him at that moment. How easy it could have been for him to say, yes, I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one the prophets foretold. I am the Messiah. Surely it would have been easier for the priests if John had said he was the Messiah, even if it meant lying. It would have been easier for them to go back to the Pharisees and say, we found the Messiah, he's that guy right there, mission accomplished. The priests want John to be something other than who he is. They expect him to be someone greater than who he really is. Tell us, are you the Messiah, they ask. I am not, is all he replies. John very clearly lays out for them that he is not the Son of God, but he is the voice that calls for people to prepare for the way of the Lord, for he is soon coming. Then why are you baptizing him, they challenge. I only baptize with water, he says, but the one who is coming after me is so much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy enough to untie his shoes. John's entire existence is to point to the coming Christ. In fact, the very next day, John literally points to Jesus and announces, Here he is. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is here. It's interesting to note at this point in the Gospel of John that John the Baptist simply fades away. Some of John's disciples jealously complain to Jesus 
or to John that more people are following Jesus than him. And John simply says, it has to be this way. I must decrease so that he can increase. And in the Gospel of John, he does just that. However, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is thrown into prison for calling out King Herod on all kinds of evil. And he is eventually beheaded for it, but not in the Gospel of John. In this Gospel, John fades away, and the age of prophets comes to a close, as there is no longer any need for a voice crying out to prepare the way, since the Son of God is now here. I am the voice. But I am not the Messiah. John knows who he is and who he is not. I am a pastor. I am not the Messiah. You are teachers and doctors and students and mechanics and bankers and technicians, but you are not the Messiah. It's important to be mindful of who we are and who we are not. If you noticed in the Gospel, John is sent by God. The priests, on the other hand, are sent by the Pharisees. So, people. This is important. Because when it comes to identity, God affirms who we are, but people question it. Using the words of the prophets, God confirms John's identity. On the other hand, the priests challenge it. They expect John to be more than who he is. They are disappointed, maybe let down even. I know that feeling, and I suspect you might too, when others are disappointed that you aren't better, or bigger, or more than what you really are. The voices of external expectations will always challenge us and cause us to doubt who we are, but the internal voice of God continually affirms us and calls us back to who we really are, which is children of God. God isn't disappointed that John isn't the Messiah. There already is a Messiah. God needs John's voice to cry out and prepare the people for Jesus. John is sent by God, not by people. You are sent by God, not people. God sends you into the world. It might seem like people send you because our letters of call or contracts and diplomas and such all bear human signatures, but it is in fact God who is doing the sending. God sends you into the world. And no matter what external voices might offer criticisms that you are insufficient or inadequate, you are enough whoever you are, however you are. You are enough exactly as you are. Know who you are, just as John knows who he is. This lies at the root of sin, the temptation to be something we are not. It's the tragedy that unfolds in the Garden of Eden when the devil tempts Adam and Eve by saying, you don't want to be human, do you? Wouldn't you rather be like God? Here, eat this. And suddenly humans are thrust into the role of playing God, and it turns out we're pretty sucky at it. Turns out when given the knowledge of good and evil, we love the evil, we kill, and judge, and torture, and exclude, and dominate, and oppress. 
We fashion God in our own image by assuming God will grant me material prosperity, <clears throat> that God will make my team win and make your team lose, that God will win my side of the war and crush your side of the war, that God will love the people I love and hate the people I hate. We play the role of God terribly, which is why we're not supposed to be playing that role in the first place. We are humans, and God is God. And now God gives us something better to eat, the body and blood of his own son, which reminds us that while we are not God, we are loved by God so much that God would sacrifice his most beloved son in order to forgive us for thinking we could ever play that role in the first place. John plays his part well, even to his death in prison. He announces, he proclaims, he prepares. He does not die on the cross. He does not descend into hell to battle Satan. He is not resurrected after three days. He is not the Messiah. He is the voice. John plays his part well. Everyone plays their part. We all have a role. We each bring our own gifts to the roles we play. Two weeks ago, I poked fun at the kings from the east, because it's so easy to do. But in the end, they each bring their best to honor Jesus. This is all God asks of us, really, as God sends us into the world to use our very best gifts to honor the Messiah who gives his life for us. Know who you are, and know who you're not. Listen less to the voices that wish you to be something more or something different. And instead, listen to the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who sends you into the world. Cast aside who you are not and embrace who you are, who God created you to be in all of your fullness. Worry less about human expectation and instead seek to bring joy and even amusement to the God who loves you. We may not be presidents or prime ministers or Supreme Court justices, but we all have a voice. May we boldly use it to promote kingdom, love, and justice wherever we go. Like John, may we use our voices to prepare the world for something new something that's never been seen or done or said before. Do not be afraid to swim upstream, to shake up the status quo, or even to confidently order a large glass of milk in the fanciest of restaurants, always to be served with your meal. Amen. <laughs>